lectures together called as patterns of inheritance so we we have a series of five lectures we have split them into two two and one okay so we begin the first two today tomorrow you have two more of patterns of inheritance and the remaining one will be done on monday okay now what what we shall be doing in this series of lectures is try to identify patterns or how is a disease transmitted from one generation to another we are going to talk about single gene disorders un under this under this uh, heading okay now the patterns of inheritance if you look at the objectives all the objectives for the um, for the series of five lectures has been listed on this powerpoint so i think it's four four slides four or five slides 1 2 3 4 and and that is so these are the the objectives for all the five lectures okay so it so if you don't find it in this lecture please go to the next powerpoint and you will find it there or in the last one okay so eventually we plan to split the objectives and make sure that it's pertaining to that group of lectures okay i think i said 5 yeah 1 to 5 yes <laughs> sometimes you know you have this memory loss short term <laughs> yeah okay um there is a flipped classroom component to this lecture and that is your your reading assignment in from the corf's textbook of genetics how many of you have read the okay that shows me how many are pre reading okay so uh, we expect all of you all to read before the end of the the series of this lecture and before your exam obviously yeah so that's chapter 10 of your genetics textbook and and today we have two questions click a questions based of the reading that you were supposed to do before this lecture i i'm sorry that we did not inform you yesterday but next term we will be more cognizant about that now before we begin the lecture um before we actually go into the meat of the lecture there are some definitions that you may have to come back frequently the first thing is what is a gene you've talked about the gene in many different courses now gene is the sequence of dna which codes for a specific protein it could be an enzyme or a protein and it includes the regulatory regions of that required for transcription and late and transcription of that gene now pay special attention to locus and allele because this is very frequently mixed up locus is the location of a specific gene on the chromosome for example the cftr gene is always located on maybe the short arm of chromosome 7 so that is its specific location on the chromosome so you have to identify whether it's the short arm or the long arm and what is the specific region or the location where that gene is present so that is the locus allele on the other hand are different versions of that gene so it could be that the allele or or that gene or that protein is existent in more than one form then we say this gene has different alleles now when you compare the different alleles they usually differ in base sequence that means on translation they usually differ there is slight changes in amino acid sequence many of them many of these alleles in the population 
you may find that there is a change in the base sequence. It translates to a change in the amino acid sequence in the protein. However, it does not have a lot of effect on the function of the protein. That is, function of the protein is still within physiological limits. And most of these times, such alleles are said to be quite prevalent in the population. And then we say that this gene is polymorphic or this allele is polymorphic. So that means the function is not it's still within the physiological range. That means there is no phenotypic manifestation of having this polymorphic allele, but it is present quite prevalent in the population when usually more than 1 to 2% of the population has this kind of allele. We say that this is a polymorphism of the gene compared to the mutation, which is usually associated with some reduced activity or with a decrease in function of that protein. You have to be familiar with who is a homozygote, they have the same alleles at a specific location or same allele of the gene, whereas heterozygote possesses different alleles at, of that gene. Dominant, when a disorder is said to be dominant, when one copy of the mutation is sufficient to result in phenotypic or clinical manifestations or clinical features. On the other hand, recessive, a recessive disorder usually requires two copies of the mutant gene to have phenotypic effect or to produce clinical manifestation. So we shall be coming back to these words often, so pay attention to them as we go. Yeah? And you can come back and try to refer to them over and over again. Again, since locus and allele is so frequently mixed up, locus is the specific location. For example, if we imagine that this is chromosome number 10, so I would say that gene A is present on the short arm of chromosome 10, and that is its specific location. Yeah? So if you look at any person, if you look at this location of chromosome 10, it's always going to be that gene A. However, there may be slight base changes, which later translates to amino acid changes of gene A, and then we say that this gene has alleles or different versions of that gene. Sorry. So the little a is the allelic form or a different version of the gene A. Okay? The big A, we refer to the big as dominant usually, and the little a is usually considered as the recessive form. So try to differentiate a homozygote for big A has two copies of big A, whereas homozygote for little a has two copies of little a, whereas a heterozygote has one copy of big A and one of the little one. Now, another important definition that you have to, another important word that you have to pay attention to is recurrence risk. So, recurrence risk is when, when you're talking about a genetic disorder, what is the risk of the offspring of a couple? So, imagine one of them or both of them have a disease or both of them are carriers. What is the risk that the offspring of this couple is going to have this specific disorder? Yeah? Now, for single gene disorders that we shall be discussing in these lectures, it does not depend on the number of previously affected offspring. So that is an important point. So what you have to pay attention to is if you want to calculate the recurrence risk for a disorder, you have to note what is or you have to identify what is the mode of inheritance of that disorder. So mode of inheritance is important and number of previously affected 
or unaffected offsprings is usually not taken into consideration because it's the same. Each, each event is considered to be independent. Pedigree, we'll be looking at a lot of pedigrees, is when you draw the family history in the form of a picture. Yeah, so with boxes and circles and we'll explain how to read the pedigree. The last two people here on, on this slide, consultant versus proband. Now consultant, as the name tells you, has come for consultation. What is different between a consultant versus a proband is consultant may have a, the disease that they're talking about or may have family history of the disease. So they have just come for con consultation. They may or may not be affected. Try to compare it with a proband. Proband is typically an affected individual. So any disorder that you talk about, if it's an affected individual who has come for consultation, they are referred to as the proband. So these are some definitions that you might want to come back over and over. Okay? For those of you who have seen genetics before, it's your time to sleep now, one minute, and then we come back again. Yeah? Now, when you want to represent a family history, an individual is usually the, a male is represented as a square, a female as a circle, and when the sex is unknown, typically before the birth of the child, it is a, a diamond or a rhombus. When the person is affected, the person is usually shaded, affected male, female, or affected unknown, when the sex is not known. A dead individual is indicated by a slash across. Sometimes in a pedigree, we may have to indicate that the person is dead because of the disease or he was affected with the disease. Then the person is shaded and there is a slash across that individual. Stillborn is again a slash across, but the alphabet's SB next to it. So that's a stillbirth. Proband, remember, is an affected individual, usually indicated by that arrow. So affected individual means shaded, and the arrow tells you that they have, you're, you're referring to that specific person in the pedigree. Now sometimes in families, in some cultures, you have mating between related individuals. And when the related individuals are closer than second cousin level or, or even closer than that, we say that there is consanguinity, that means sharing of blood. This is indicated by two lines between the two individuals. A single line between two individuals indicates non-consanguinous mating. Yeah, non-consanguinous mating. Whereas when there is mating between related individuals, typically who are closer than second cousin level or closer than that, that is indicated by two lines. Yes, you have a question? Uh, yes, inbreeding is a term we don't use in medicine because it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, okay, so you, you try to use complicated words so that, you know, you don't want to put the patient, you don't want to hurt the patient, yes? So consanguinity, they won't know what you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes? Now, pedigree chart. Now, if you're familiar with drawing family histories as a pedigree, then again, you can close your eyes, open your brain. Now, this is indicating mating between individuals. That's the relationship no longer exists yeah, when the line is broken. Now, these are the children born out of this mating. The first born, there is a consanguinity. He has married someone from the family okay, who is related to this person. So the first born. 
The second bond is a group of twins or a pair of twins. Now, a line between them indicates that they are monozygotic twins. Now, monozygotic twins have arisen by the fertilization of the single zygote. That means they share genes. They have identical genes. Yeah? So that, that's common between monozygotic twin, twins. Compare it to dizygotic twins. There is no line in between. Dizygotic twins have arisen as a result of fertilization of two ova, two different ova. So remember, since they are derived from two different ova or two different oocytes, they are similar to siblings. Then they are different from monozygotic because they they share some of the genes, but they share what is similar to sibling. Yeah, so they are related almost like a sibling. But how are they different from siblings is they are born at the same time. So they are exposed to the same intrauterine environment. Okay? So dizygotic twins are technically equivalent to siblings, genetically equivalent to siblings, but they are slightly different from siblings because they are exposed to the same intrauterine environment. Okay? Whereas siblings are born at different times. The next person in this, the next child in this family is biologically related but has been adopted out of the family. Now this child would be a good study. So the, this child is genetically related to, this, to the other children in the family, but has, is now moved to a different environment. Yeah? So these children who, ha, who are adopted out of the family can be useful for genetic studies when you want to study the importance of genetics versus environment. Okay? The, the next child here, note, the line is broken, that means there is no genetic relationship with the other siblings. Okay? This child has been adopted into the family. This is an adoption into the family. Now again, this child would be a good, for genetic purposes, you want to compare. Yeah? So the genes are different. Yeah? They, they come from a different family. So whereas they have, it, this child has the same um, environment as the, the siblings. Okay? So these two children are typically used for genetic studies when you want to compare heritability versus environmental factors which are uh, related to a disorder. The last one in this family is indicated by a, is a stillbirth and the SB tells you that it's a stillbirth and a slash across. So this is a male and was stillborn. Okay. Now, there are different ways by which you can name a pedigree. We shall use this one for our course. And, and even in the exam, you should be able to use only this one. Yeah? So we will refer to only one. If we use a different kind, then it will be labeled appropriately. So there are three generations in this family. So persons one and two, one, one, and one, two. Now note that two, one, two, three, two, five, two, six, and two, eight. All of them are siblings. 2, 2, 2, 4, and 2, 7 have been married into the family. Yeah? So that's, that's, how, that's how you read it. Now 2, 1, and 2, 2, the children are 3, 1, and 3, 2. So they, 3, 1, and 3, 2 are technically siblings. 3, 1, and 3, 3, how are they related? They're first cousins. Okay? 3, 1, and 3, 3 are first cousins. Now sometimes... So when you shade, completely shade a person, that person is affected. Now carriers, there are different ways to represent carriers. When a person is shaded in half, you, that could indicate a carrier. Sometimes you indicate a, a carrier by a dot 
So that also indicates a carrier. Okay? So if we say, if we don't give you a picture, or we say, we give you this picture and say two is five, so you should be able to point out, so the numbering starts from one end to the other. Okay? And it, it's not confined just to the siblings, but just they are labeled according to the order that you see in the picture. Now with that introduction, we move on to the major modes of inheritance that we shall be looking at in this series of lectures. So Mendelian kind of inheritance of the single gene disorders, autosomal dominant versus autosomal recessive, where there is a mutation in chromosome 1 to 22. So the, mutation, the mutant gene is located anywhere on chromosome 1 to 22. That is one of the autosomes. Autosomal dominant and recessive. Now, if the mutant gene is located on the X chromosome, there are two kinds of transmission. It could be either dominant or recessive. So we'll try to compare and contrast all of them. And if the mutant gene is located on the Y chromosome, it's called as Y-linked inheritance, which is not very common. So we shall not be breaking our heads over the Y-linked inheritance. And why? We shall be seeing it later. So and finally, we shall look at DNA, which is also present in the mitochondria, and how mutations in mitochondrial DNA, how are they passed from one generation to another. So that is mitochondrial inheritance, which follows a non-Mendelian fashion. Okay? So autosomal dominant or recessive is where the mutation is located chromosome 1 to 22. Mitochondrial is when it's located on the mitochondrial DNA. Okay? So first we begin with autosomal dominant. Now when you think about autosomal dominant disorders, now as the name tells you, dominant means one copy of the mutant gene is sufficient to present with manifestations or clinical features of the disorder. So typically autosomal dominant disorders, they typically tend to present in the heterozygous state. That means this person has one copy of the normal gene and one copy of the mutation. Now, for autosomal dominant disorders, it's an important, there is an important, so you can highlight this or put a star here. Until and otherwise we indicate that this is an autosomal dominant disorder in the homozygous state, which is very rare in the population. So until we say that, in other words, assume that a person with an autosomal dominant disorder is heterozygous, unless we state otherwise. So that's an important rule that you have to follow, especially in human genetic disorders, yeah? human autosomal dominant disorders, because later you will be looking at population genetics and you will realize the incidence of autosomal dominant disorders being present in the homozygous state is very, very rare. It's not very commonly seen. So until we say the person is homozygous, you always assume that they are heterozygous. That means they have one copy of the normal gene and one copy of the mutation. Okay? Now, if you look at a family with an autosomal dominant disorder, yeah? now, when we say a disorder is dominant, what you're trying to look at is whether every generation is affected. So when you look at this family, you find that generation one, a person is affected, in generation two also, and generation three. In other words, every generation is affected but you want to characterize it better. So you will look at, so every generation is affected. Now look at affected children. For example here, 3-1 is affected. You want to look at whether one of the parents is affected. 
So 3, 1 is affected. They have an affected parent. 2, 1. 2, 5 is affected. She has an affected parent. 1, 1. So the meaning of vertical inheritance is not only it is present in every generation, but whether every affected child has an affected parent. So when an affected child has an affected parent, we say there is vertical inheritance. In other words, there is no skipping of generations. No skipping of generations. So that is how you say that this is a dominant disorder. <clears throat> Autosomal dominant disorders can be frequently mixed up with X-linked dominant disorders. Yeah? Because both are transmitted in a vertical fashion. So how do you differentiate between autosomal dominant versus X-linked dominant? Now in autosomal dominant disorders, if you look at the family, there will be at least one instance of father to son transmission. Or this is also called as male to male, father to son or male to male transmission. And when you find a father to son transmission and you find no skipping of generations, you think it is an autosomal dominant disorder. Why is it not an X-linked dominant? Male to male is never seen in X-linked dominant because X-linked disorder means the mutation is on the X chromosome. Remember, sons never get the X chromosome from their dad. They always get it from the mom. So that, this is an important distinction and maybe you want to highlight it. To differentiate it from, so autosomal dominant disorder, how do you differentiate it from X-linked dominant, that is you want to look for. And if you find even one instance of father-to-son transmission, most likely it is autosomal dominant and not X-linked dominant. Okay. Now next we move on to the next issue. How do we calculate the recurrence risk? So a couple has come for counseling. One of them has the, the mutation. In other words, one of them is affected. The other parent is normal. Okay. Now, to calculate the recurrence risk for autosomal disorders, I prefer to use the alphabet A. Yeah? Because for X-linked disorders, I prefer to use X, whereas for autosomal, I prefer to use A. Now, since we're talking about a dominant allele, that means if one copy is mutant, it tends to have clinical manifestations. The mutant allele, I would prefer to write it as capital A. The mutant allele, oh bless you, is capital A. The normal allele, on the other hand, note that it is somewhat recessive because even though it is present, there is still clinical manifestation. So the normal allele, I would like to write it as little a. The affected parent is big A little a. The normal parent has two normal copies, is little a, little a. Okay? So when you try, how many of you know how to draw the Punnett squares? All of you have to be able to draw it before the end of the course. Yes. Now, the Punnett squares, the affected parent is written on top here, big A, little a. Normal parent is little a, little a. Now, did you observe that the sex of the affected parent isn't important for this kind of disorder? The sex of the affected parent isn't important. Be it the dad affected or the mom affected, the risk is the same to the child. Yeah? So the sex of the affected parent isn't important. And that's why I didn't say affected mom or affected dad. So when you draw the Punnett squares, you will realize that 50% of or every child that is born to this couple, there is 50% risk that it may be affected and 50% chance that it may be normal. Yeah? Remember, it does not depend on previously affected children. There's an another thing that you have to remember. So sex of the affected parent isn't important and the sex of the child that's born is not important too. 
it is regardless of the sex of the child, the risk is always the same. It's always going to be 50%. Yeah? That's not the same for the sex-linked disorders. Okay? It will change for the sex-linked disorders. So try to answer this question. Also, if I go beyond the time, or when I'm coming close to the time, if someone can remind me gently, <laughs> yeah, the time up or something, yeah, okay. Sometimes we tend to get carried over, yeah. Any more time? Two more seconds? Good enough? So, what did you answer? Okay. You need more time? Are we good? Yes? Okay. So typically, number of males and females affected are equal in an autosomal dominant disorder, but here more males are affected. Just, just, that's just a matter of chance. But, but that's not a feature. It's not a feature of autosomal dominant. Yeah? And the feature is vertical inheritance, which means affected children have affected parents. Okay? At least one parent is affected. The next question. Two more seconds. Yeah. Okay. We need we need a little more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. One more second, and then we are done. Yes. I'm just waiting for 490 at least. Okay. So remember, this is the rule that we talked about when when you're talking about an autosomal dominant disorder. You will be learning in a short while that familial hypercholesterolemia is an autosomal dominant disorder, and Almost 99% of the time, they are in the heterozygous state, okay? Because that's the most frequent state. So the next question. Now you'll notice that there are many questions on this lecture, within the lecture itself. But there are more practice questions available too. So we'll just, ma just make sure to look at Sakai under the practice question folder. Questions for the last week have already been posted. Make sure you look at them. Okay. So what is the risk for the next child? And what did you write? I'm expecting 100%. Yes, you have a question or? 
What's that? About the previous slide? Okay. So you need more time? Two more seconds? Make sure to click for your attendance. Okay. So remember, it does not depend on previously affected... Okay, that's very good. I don't have to explain. So you want me to explain something about the previous... Yes, you have a question about the previous... Yes. Oh, that doesn't mean that they don't have a partner. It's only they didn't want to show the partner. Yes, oh, of course, yes. So anything that... All of these are the children, yeah? Yes. And if they are not shown, that means most likely they are normal. Okay? Okay. Now, autosomal dominant disorders. So... Just for you to remember and for us to remember, make sure that we tell you all, we expect you to remember these disorders and the mode of transmission that are listed on this slide. That's why we have indicated it in red. Familial hypercholesterolemia, you'll be, doing about, you'll be talking about more about this disorder before the end of the course this term. Huntington disease and myotonic dystrophy are classified as the triplet repeat expansion disorders and we are going to discuss I think on Monday about these two disorders, more about these two disorders. Marfan syndrome, which is a mutation of a structural protein fibrillin. Osteogenesis imperfecta, mutation in collagen. And we are going to talk about both of these before the end of the term. Achondroplasia, you will see it many times in many different disciplines. Neurofibromatosis type 1, which is the case reading that is required for this group of lectures. And finally, acute intermittent porphyria. Now, this is an unusual example of an autosomal dominant disorder because in acute intermittent porphyria, it is an enzyme deficiency. So typically, enzyme deficiency disorders tend to present in an autosomal recessive fashion, except there are a few exceptions that you have to keep in mind. One of them is acute intermittent porphyria. So that is an example of an enzyme deficiency disorder but presents in an autosomal dominant fashion. That means mutation of one of the copies is sufficient to present with the disease or to present with the clinical manifestations. Now, myotonic dystrophy is one of the classical examples of what's called as a triplet repeat disorder. What happens in this is there is a three base pair sequence that just keeps repeating many hundreds of times. So there is too many copies of that repeat sequence. Yeah? So this is uh, considered as a triplet repeat disorder. We are going to talk about it more in the next five lectures. Okay? The mutation is in the DMPK gene. It's said to be the most pleiotropic. What does this word mean? Pleiotropy means that it, mutation in one gene or a single gene disorder which affects multiple organ systems. So such a disorder is said to be pleiotropic. For example, if you look at this patient, they have wasting of the muscles, so muscle, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle is affected too. So you can see multiple organ systems affected by a single gene disorder. This is the meaning of pleiotropy. They also have, some have cataracts, some have endocrine problems, and of course, myotonia. The next 
disorder, autosomal dominant disorder, is mutation of the FGFR3, that is the fibroblast growth factor receptor gene. So mutation of the FGFR3. So this gene codes for a transmembrane protein or a transmembrane receptor that is required for the differentiation of cartilage to bone. Yeah? Now achondroplasia, we say, is an example of gain of a new function or gain of a novel function or a novel property. And as a result of this mutation, these children typically have very stunted growth. So they, they're typically very short. They have very short limbs. Yeah? And it is easily identified at birth, achondroplasia. Okay? And it results in severe stunting of growth and can be identified at birth. Now imagine, now this is a very unusual case. So until we tell you that, don't, don't assume that both parents are affected. So this is an unusual scenario. Richard and Linda both are affected with achondroplasia and they decide to have, they decide to have a family. Now remember, both of them are heterozygous. That means they carry at least one copy of the mutation. Now if you try to draw, draw the Punnett squares and if you try to calculate what is the risk to the offspring, you will realize that there is one in four chance that the child or the zygote may get two copies of the mutant gene, two copies of the mutation. Now this is the homozygous autosomal dominant state or homozygous achondroplasia state. Now for achondroplasia, this is a special situation where this fetus or the, the child this is not compatible with life and typically these, there is usually spontaneous abortion usually during the second or the third trimester or there is stillbirth or they die immediately after birth. Okay? So this is an exception to the, you know, where homozyg this is considered as homozygote lethal. Okay? So when you're doing counseling, so imagine Linda is pregnant and she has come for counseling and they ask you what is the chance that the child may have achondroplasia, you have to explain that one in four chance the child may have lethal achondroplasia and you know, they may end up with a pregnancy that has, you know, that there's no children or they don't have, the, you know, they don't have a, a child finally. Now two in four chance that the child may have achondroplasia, just like the mom and the dad, and one in four chance that the child may be completely normal, because it, there is a chance that it gets the, uh, the normal copies of the gene from both parents. Okay? So this is important in counseling. Okay? So one in four that the child may be a lethal homozygote, two in four that it is heterozygous, or one in four that it may be normal homozygote. Yeah? Normal homozygote would have normal stature. Now, neurofibromatosis type 1, NF1, also called as von reckling hausen's disease, is quite a common disorder in the population. Transmitted as an autosomal dominant disorder and mutation of the NF1 gene. Now, if you think about the NF1 gene and you analyze the mutations in different families, you find that there are different kinds of mutation of the NF1 gene which result in the same disorder. So you're talking about the same gene, but different kinds of mutations of the NF1 gene. And this phenomenon is called as allelic heterogeneity. You're still, there is still mutation of the same gene, NF1 gene, 
but different kinds of mutations in different children, in different affected people. Now, what is the function of the NF1 gene? It codes for a tumor suppressor protein, and since it loses, there is loss of function, what happens is the NF1 gene no longer is functioning, or the neurofibromin is no longer functioning. Therefore, these patients tend to have these um, swellings that are usually typically benign in the early stages, but may progress on to cancer. So that's the function of the NF1 gene. Now, patients with neurofibromatosis may have the brownish colored spots, and that's called as the cafole spots. The swellings on the skin, which may be typically they're tiny or very, very big and can be quite disfiguring. And some patients have lish nodules in the eye. Yeah? So these are the brownish colored nodules in the, in the iris. So these are some of the manifestations of patients with NF1 or NF1 mutations or neurofibromatosis type 1. The Lish nodules, the Lish nodule is here. The Lish nodules in the eye. Okay. Now, we, we say that, the, yes, you have a question? Yeah. Not necessary, no. It, usually you want to look for something else. I think you, you need at least three of these findings, two to three of the findings, to, to be able to say neurofibromatosis. Okay. Now we say that this disorder has variable expressivity. What does that mean? Now if you compare patients with neurofibromatosis, you're talking about the same disease, but some people are very severely affected. Some have very severe disfigurements. Some others have very tiny swellings. Or some others may not have many swellings, very few swellings. Or some people may just have cafole and, and maybe the, the swellings are inside, you know, where you can't see them. Yeah? Swellings of the nerves that, that you can't see. However, we say that it has high penetrance. What does that mean? Now, high penetrance means that most patients who have this mutation will have some clinical manifestation. Okay, so high, when we say that the disorder has, or a mutation has a high penetrance, that means Patients with this disorder, most of them yeah, have clinical manifestations or phenotypic manifestations of the disease. We are coming back to it over and over, but, but we just, I just like to explain it over and over again so that it, can, it sticks. Okay? So in autosomal dominant disorders, we are, we are saying that it's in the heterozygous state. So remember, these people have one normal gene. Yeah? So... What, what is the explanation, what is the molecular explanation for the autosomal dominant transmission? Or why do they have clinical features even though they have one normal version of the gene? There are different uh, explanations for different disorders. The first explanation that is provided, molecular explanation, is what's called as haploinsufficiency. Now the word haploinsufficiency means that the product that is formed or the protein that is formed from one of the genes. Remember, one gene is normal, the other one is mutant. So the protein product formed from the one normal gene is not sufficient to carry out the physiological functions. That means the protein that is produced from the normal product, one copy is normal. So that means this protein, both genes have to produce the protein in order to carry out the normal physiological function. So what happens in, in haploinsufficiency is since one of the copies has been knocked out, only one normal, one normal copy in this person 
the 50% amount of protein production is not sufficient to prevent the clinical manifestations or you could say to carry out the physiological functions. Examples of disorders with this explanation will be familial hypercholesterolemia where the LDL receptor is, there is a mutation of the LDL receptor and there is only 50% of LDL receptor production in patients with familial hypercholesterolemia and that is not enough to bring the serum cholesterol level back to normal. Okay? The other example is acute intermittent porphyria where the enzyme is produced, only 50% of enzyme production and that is not enough to produce enough of heme. In other words, it causes manifestations. Osteogenesis imperfecta type 1, which you will be seeing again in the MSK module, is also an example of haploinsufficiency. Now the next molecular explanation for a few other disorders is what's called as dominant negative effect. Dominant negative effect. Now typically, when you want to explain the dominant negative effect, you're looking at structural proteins. Yeah? Now what happens is, you have, so the patient who has an autosomal dominant disorder has a normal gene and has a mutant gene. Now the normal gene produces the normal protein, the mutant gene produces the mutant version of that protein. However, when they try to associate the, the presence of the mutant gene or the presence of the mutant protein prevents the association of the normal protein. In other words, it's, it's trying to have a negative effect. Examples are typically structural proteins like Marfan syndrome. So the fibrillin that is produced by the mutant gene does not allow the normal fibrillin to associate in the normal required fashion. Another example is the collagen disorder. You're looking at the more severe collagen disorders like type 2 where the, collagen, the mutant collagen does not allow the normal collagen or the protein from the normal gene to associate to produce the functional protein. And the last explanation for the next group of disorders is when as a result of the mutation there is a new property gained or a novel property. This is sometimes called as gain of function mutation and it could be used for explaining some cancer mutations which are gain of function. Huntington disease and we just explained achondroplasia. Huntington disease, what happens is the abnormal protein or the mutant protein, it is not normally degraded and therefore tends to accumulate in the cell and therefore is destroying the function of the neurons. Okay? So that's the explanation. So different group of disorders have different kinds of molecular explanations on why they manifest in the heterozygous state. Now this, is, this was your reading that you were required to do about the neurofibromatosis, so try to answer. Again, the reference is given here, so make sure you go back and read it, okay? Okay, so two more seconds. 
You want more time? I'll wait to 490. Okay, that's good. Yes. So that's your answer. And that's your homework for the day, yes? So did you just guess? Mostly, yeah? So this one, I think, because I realized that you hadn't read. I think I gave you the answer to this, but let's see. Let's see how many caught it. I need one more click, yeah? Okay, so I found the, yeah. Okay, that's not bad. So that, that tells you that you were all awake, 85% of the time. Okay? You have a question? Yes. I think you want to go back and... Is that a dog there? Oh, my goodness. For a second, I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, did he also click? <laughs> okay. Uh, I, think, I think I'll answer that question later. Okay? Yes. You have a question? Yes. Yeah. What's that? With the mutant allele and the normal allele. Yes. Normal gene product. Product. Yes. Protein. Yes. What's that? Yes. And we still have five more minutes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And so we are all back. Now, a person who is homozygous for, for an autosomal dominant disorder is always more severely affected. Typical examples are familial hypercholesterolemia. Homozygote is much more severely affected. The manifestations at a much earlier age. We talked about achondroplasia, which was an exception where the homozygote was lethal. It's not compatible with life. Huntington disease, again, what we want you all to note is that unless and until we say that an autosomal dominant disorder is homozygous, never assume it to be homozygous. Yeah? So remember, most of the time it is heterozygous, unless we say otherwise. Okay? We move on to the next group of disorders, that is autosomal recessive. Now when you're thinking about an autosomal recessive disorder, you require two mutations, yeah? two copies. So remember for every gene, for most of the genes, we have two copies. If both copies are mutant, we say that the disorder is an autosomal recessive disorder and they have clinical manifestations of the disease. 
Now, then what do you call this person who has one copy of the normal and one copy of the mutant allele? One copy of the normal allele versus and one copy of the mutant allele. This person is a heterozygote or a carrier. Carriers typically have no clinical manifestations. In other words, they are, they are phenotypically normal. In other words, they are hidden in the population. So carriers are typically hidden in the population. It's difficult to identify carriers in the population. Then how do you know they are carriers? It's only when they come to you with an affected child do you know that this is a, most likely both parents are carriers of that mutation. Yeah? Now it's interesting, the last statement here on this slide. So we talked about carriers, phenotypically normal, because 50% of gene production is sufficient to carry out the physiological function. Now it's interesting to note that all of us carry about, they say about 8 to 10 recessive mutations. However, unless you mate with a person who has the same mutation, and there is a risk that you may have an affected child. Yeah? But all of us carry about 8 to 10, it seems, about 8 to 10 recessive mutations. Okay? Now, if you think about autosomal recessive disorders and, and the family history of autosomal recessive disorders, most of the time you see that one generation is typically affected. Yeah? So this is sometimes called as horizontal inheritance. So there may be a, a person affected in the higher or in the earlier generations of the pedigree and maybe in the later generations. In other words, what we want you all to identify is that there is skipping of generations, and that is typical for a recessive disorder. Again, the meaning of skipping of generations here is affected children here do not have affected parents. So parents are not affected. So that is typical of a recessive disorder, where affected children do not have affected parents. In other words, there is skipping of generations. Now, autosomal recessive disorders are sometimes mixed up with X-linked recessive disorders. How do you differentiate between the two? Now, X-linked recessive disorders, we, sh we are going to look at that in the later part of the next lecture. X-linked recessive disorders typically tend to be present in males. So you will find only males being affected. There are other features that you sh we shall be concentrating on. But here you will notice that the number of males and females are almost equal. Whereas in X-linked recessive, it's mainly males who are being affected with an X-linked recessive disorder. Okay? And that is how you differentiate an X-linked disorder versus an autosomal recessive disorder. I, I think, you, I think we, we are on time, yes? So take a break and come back in 10 minutes. Anyway, I'm come. So we'll begin exactly on time. Okay? Thank you.